If you have your Bible, let's open them together to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. Uh, someone asked me earlier this evening if I'm going to preach through Acts all the way through our time in revival. And I'll just be honest with you. What I do is I get into a revival situation and I ask the Lord to give me real clarity about the people that I've been able to interact with and what I feel, what He, what he wants me to say. And so I trust Him on a day-by-day basis to present to me. And so if you came to me right now and asked what scripture I'm going to be preaching tomorrow, I'd tell you I don't know until in the morning whenever the Lord lays it on my heart. And, uh, and that's what's happened today. The Lord gave me a very distinct word. And you know that uh, after yesterday, uh, the two sermons yesterday that I'm basing the sermons off of questions, and you'll remember the first question that we sought to answer was, do we believe that God is in control? And the second one that we sought to answer was, do we believe that the Bible is true? And today, all day, the Lord has been impressing this question on my heart. Are you desperate for Jesus? Because if you are, the song that you just sang, excuse me, if you're not, the song that you just sang, you just lied to God. Man, I'd never heard that song before. And there were moments as, and you guys were singing it so well, so I'm assuming you've heard it. But as I read the words, there were moments where I had to stop and pause and consider whether or not I really meant what I was singing. Jesus is my all. Hallelujah. The greatest form of praise that you can give. It was a powerful expression of salvation. And a question that I ask my people often at First McAllister is this. Have you gotten over your salvation? Have you ever gotten over your salvation? The premise for that question comes from this thought. In American Christianity, it's real easy for us to go through the motions of trusting Christ. It's real easy for us to go through the motions of church. It's real easy for us to go through the motions of spiritual life. We don't really sense any form of persecution. We don't really have to walk through any difficulty in following Jesus. It's pretty easy for us just to fall into a status quo mentality. And and I had, I think, one one of you said to me last night, for far too long the Baptist church has given out too many uh, save-from-hell certificates. Something along those, those lines. And that's an interesting statement. Because the commissioning of the church is to do what? To make disciples. And how often have we allowed people to have a get out of hell free card instead of actually helping them to become true disciples that Jesus desires for them to be? So the premise of the sermon tonight is this. Have you gotten over your salvation and are you desperate for Jesus? And tonight, I had a specific text in mind and it's still going to be my text, but I'm going to back up a little bit and we're going to read a whole section of Scripture and I want you to just read it with me. And here's the question that I want you to ask. As you're reading this, I want you to think very clearly, very specifically about this thought. Am I desperate for this man, Jesus? And in desperation for this man, Jesus, that means that I must truly understand and know who this man, Jesus, is. That there must be some definitive answers in my mind and in my heart about this, who this man, Jesus, is. Because how am I ever going to be desperate for a man if I have no clue who he is? And I have no clue about what things he's done. And I have no clue about what things he's said. And I have no clue about what things he can do in my life. And so this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to take a synopsis of of a whole chapter and even some in a chapter previous to it. And we're going to look specifically at who Jesus is and why he requires that we be desperate for him, especially in the American church. So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to read a whole section. And so I want you to just follow in, and I want you to focus your attention, and I want you to look specifically at the text that we're going to read, and I want you to think as we read, who is it that Mark says that Jesus is, and am I desperate for this man that's characterized by this text? So in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, On that day when evening... Sorry, I didn't let you get to it. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. 
We're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 5. Here we go. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats, other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerenices. You got it. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it it, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And as he was getting into the boat... The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, 
Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but is sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And told them to give her something to eat. Jesus, I pray now by the power of your spirit, the truth of your word, Father, that if there's one person here who doesn't know you, God, maybe there's a cultural Christian in the room, someone who believes father that somewhere in their past because they walked an aisle that they were saved but god their hearts are far from you and that god and someday when they stand before you in the judgment you will look at them and and they will hear those very hard words that we see in matthew that depart from me i never knew you you worker of iniquity and i pray tonight by the power of your word and by the desperation of seeing who you are, and seeing the power that's available through you and seeing the healing and the salvation that's available through you, God, that their hearts would be drawn not by their works, God, but by your Spirit, that they may truly be saved tonight. That there would be no more pretending, that there would be no more false assurance, but that there would be only hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's one in this room who has never even considered who Jesus is, I pray tonight, God, by the preaching and study of your word that you would draw their hearts by the power of your spirit. And that, God, they would find themselves having faith that's given by you and salvation that's assured by you. God, I don't pretend to know the hurts and the pains and the fears and the difficulties and the failures in this room God but you know every single circumstance of every person and you know how you desire to minister to them through your word and so tonight as you've drawn this word up in my heart throughout today and as you've put us into the your word squarely father we ask now that you would make it clear that you would make it powerful God and that it would be enacted by the Holy Spirit and that we would not be able to walk away from this place without being changed by the power of your truth. So God, we trust you now to do what you desire to do. We're going to give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. The only way that you can ever become desperate for Jesus is to recognize the desperation of your situation. Listen to that again. The only way that you can ever become desperate for Jesus is to recognize the desperation of your situation. And that's what these stories do for us. Mark's address here is one that paints a very clear picture of the desperation of mankind for Jesus. And I want to help you see that. As you look at the first part of our text and in that section in Mark chapter 4, we see that this story takes place where Jesus has climbed into this boat and they've set sail and Jesus has with him those disciples, those men who... who have, have left everything in their life to follow after Jesus. And, and listen to me, just because they've left everything in their life to follow Jesus doesn't mean that they're yet trusting and have faith in fully in Jesus. 
It, it, it means that they have been walking with him and learning his teachings and that they have been uh, called by him and that, and that in following him they're experiencing the fullness of who he is and who he says that he is and what he can accomplish. But up to this point, we could possibly believe that based upon the statement that Jesus uses to them in the boat, that there is a good chance that they yet aren't saved that they have yet to come to believe in the person and the work and the fullness of who Jesus is. And so as we look here at the text, we see these men who have gathered in this boat. They set sail up on the water, and as they go out on the water, a great storm arises. And you can read it for yourself. Jesus goes up in the stern of the boat, and he's been ministering, and he's been preaching the truth, and he's been sharing, and I'm sure he's tired. He's worn out from the work of the calling that God's placed on his heart, and he's asleep in the front of the boat, and the waves are huge. And what do the disciples do? They freak out a little bit. Why? Because the storm's more than they understand. It's more than they can handle the waves are bigger than they expected, and this, this storm has rolled in on them in the darkness of the night. Does that sound familiar? Listen, it's an, it's an analogy of a desperate circumstance and situation of the disciples' life. We face darkness of soul. We face desperation in situations, and when the storm looks large, what happens in our lives? Often we become fearful. We become worried about the storm. We become worried about the waves that are crashing in on us. And we forget that we have someone who can calm that storm. Happened for the disciples. Disciples started freaking out and they go and they shake Jesus. And somewhere in their heart they must have known that if anybody can do something, it's got to be this man, Jesus. And there became a desperation in their heart to have something uh, calmed in their life. This storm calmed in their life. And so they go and they wake Jesus and they say, Jesus, we need your help. And Jesus arises and what does he do? He says, peace, be still. And at the speaking of His words, He commands the sea and nature and the weather. And everything calms. And you'll notice He turns to His disciples and He says to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? The first thing we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is Lord over the storms of life. Jesus is Lord over creation and nature. And if we believe that Jesus is the God who created, we have to believe that He's God over that creation. And so in our first part of our story here, we see that we see this uh, interchange that happens between man who's in the circumstance of needing Jesus. And we see Jesus who is standing ready to be Lord over their circumstance. We continue down into the next passage and what happens. So Jesus has now calmed the sea and the boats get all the way across. And here they come upon the shore. And what happens next in our text is this man who has been overcome by demons. He's been indwelt by spiritual inhabitant. That means that he is uh, living with demon possession. And whether or not we want to really believe that that still happens, it does. It happens in people's lives all the time. And for us Baptists, that really makes us uncomfortable. Why? Because we don't like to see the spiritual realm. We believe that, especially in America, that everything's in place according to our Americanized Christianity. And so we compartmentalize things and we say, well, church is for church and, and Jesus is for church. But, but my hobbies and my work and my family and all these other things, they don't relate to that church thing. And so we put it into that box and we say, okay, Jesus is for church circumstances and situations and everything else kind of falls over here. And all of these things I deal with on a daily basis and this one I get and I pick it up and in today's culture you might consider like once a month as regular church attendance we call for a revival and no one shows up not even those who profess to be Christians show up 
Why? Because baseball is more important or softball is more important or, or cows are more important or weather's more important or money's more important or family's more important or something else is more important than coming and, and being with the body of believers and being encouraged by the truth and bringing our lost friends so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and have the opportunity to trust in that same Jesus that I've trusted in. Instead, everything else becomes more important. Now listen, I know I'm preaching at the choir because you're here tonight. And I appreciate that. I'm not here to tear you down. I just want to ask you in coming tonight, is it out of religious duty or is that out of desperation for Jesus? Because if I'm not careful, I can fall into religious duty too. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. But it becomes real easy for me to fall into my religious duty mindset. And then what happens? I start creating check boxes and I say, well, I preached this Sunday, check. Told somebody about Jesus this week, check. Read my Bible daily, check. Got through Leviticus, check. Right? Sang my songs this morning, check. Listen to K-Love instead of the other radio station, check. Oh, I talked to my boys about Jesus. I prayed with them before a meal. Oh, yeah, I got to get that check, right? And I start compartmentalizing life and I start looking at it as this great task that I have to seek to accomplish. The problem is that Jesus never called us to tasks. Jesus called us to be desperate for Him. And so whenever He enters upon this shore, you see this, this man who's possessed by demon. And I want you to pay real close attention to what happens here. The man possessed by demon goes and falls down before Jesus. So now, think about this. The winds and the waves have fallen down before Jesus. Now he enters on the shore and a demon, Satan, comes and falls down before Jesus and acknowledges him as Jesus, God's son. Even demons are desperate for their interaction with Jesus. And in fact, how do we know that's true? Because look what the demon says. It says, please don't cast us out of the country. They know that Jesus has every power over them that any person, anything could ever have. And they are desperate for Jesus to at least provide them a little favor. Don't cast us out of the country. In fact, they're so desperate they make an appeal. Cast us instead into them pigs. Desperate. Can you imagine the man who is possessed by the demon? If the demons are obeying Jesus and recognizing the power of who he is and are desperate for that interaction, imagine the man who's desiring the freedom in desperation of what Jesus can give him. We don't even know what his action is during the time of the demon possession because all we see is the legion that's present within him crying out to Jesus. And yet we don't even cry out to Jesus. And so here we look at this text and we see that he, he falls down and he cries out with a loud voice and he says in verse 7, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Cast me out. If you're going to cast me out, cast me out into them pigs. And so Jesus says, Sure thing. Cast them out into the pigs. And what do the pigs do? Immediately commit suicide. Why? Because Jesus is, has power over spirits and over Satan and over demons. And he still desires, listen, did you know that Jesus handed the keys to his kingdom to the church? That means that if we wield the keys of the kingdom appropriately, we also should be able to cast out any demon. Instead, we sit in the sanctuary and decide that demons can no longer exist. Why? Because we're focused on a Christianity that's not true. We haven't really become desperate for Jesus because if we're desperate for Jesus, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. All that I have commanded you. Well, you know what he did with the apostles? Uh, with he, what he did with his, uh, with his disciples? He sent them out to do what it is that he told them to do. And what did he tell them to do? Cast out demons. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, get into your word and find out if it's true. 
I, I get to go home here in a couple days, so if you don't like me after this message, I'm sorry, but I, I'm just presenting to you what God's putting on my heart. Listen, Jesus is Lord over demons, and He desires for His church to wield the spiritual weapons in a way that could cast out demons, and people are oppressed in our world by demons. You want to know what meth addiction is? You want to know what pornography addiction is? You want to know what even a foul mouth is? It's demon possession. It's a heart separated from the power of Jesus Christ that has not yet become desperate for Jesus Christ to be set free by Jesus Christ. And we wield the power, the keys to the kingdom. That's what he said to, to Peter, remember? He said, Peter, who do people say that I am? Disciples, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say a teacher, some say a prophet. And then he said, Peter, who do people say? Who do you say that I am? And he said, I believe that you are Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. And he looked at, Jesus, at Peter and he said, Peter, you're correct. And upon this rock I shall build my church and the keys of, kingdom, keys of the kingdom shall be yours. You know what he's talking about? And, and then what does he say? He says, and what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know what that means? That means the church has given the, been given the authority of the kingdom of God. But for some reason, we left that key hanging on the little key lock inside the church. We, we, we just hung it up and said, well, thank you, Jesus. I'm saved. That's all I needed. You think... I think Jesus is Lord over demons. And then what happens? He casts them demons out and that, that man comes running. And what does he want to do? Listen, the man who has been released from the demons in his life wants to follow after Jesus anywhere Jesus goes. He says, what keeps me from going with you? And Jesus says, ah, not yet. Not yet. I want you to be found faithful to go back and tell all of your friends and all of your family what it is that I've done for you. So in a way, he's saying, you can't go with me because i got a different purpose for you in going and telling other people about what I can do. Now that's interesting because here in a minute, he's going to tell these other group of people, don't be telling nobody. Now there's got to be a reason for that. What do you think that reason is? I think it has to do with whether or not somebody's prepared to be a disciple whether or not somebody's prepared to be truly saved. The next thing that... not how it works no it's good that's not how it works you're exactly right that's not how it works it's not how it's supposed to work you got it so the next thing that we see about jesus is found in this next part of the story you ready so jesus leaves that region and he moves on to another and he crosses again in the boat and as he approaches, he has a man named Jairus who comes up to him. Now, let me teach you a little bit about who Jairus is, if you don't know. And it, the Word already tells us this, so I don't have to make this up. We know that Jairus was a synagogue official. Do you know what that means? That means that he was a leader in the Jewish church. That means that he, similar to the Ethiopian eunuch, had a belief in who God was, but he hadn't taken it far enough yet. He hadn't had faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And like most Jews... They get stuck on the law. And just like my sister just said back there, if we're not careful, it becomes law. Nah, she didn't really say that, but that's what I'm saying. It's true. If we're not careful, it becomes law. It becomes works. And then we focus more on the works than we focus on the power of Jesus. We get more focused on the law. And, and listen to me, what we're going to find in both of these cases is if we're not careful, we, we focus on 
our own accomplishment, our own righteousness, our own power, our own ability. And listen, we believe that Jesus can save us, but we don't believe that He can keep us saved. And so whenever we look at this text, we see Jairus, and what does he do? He comes, synagogue official, a Jewish leader. But what is he recognizing in this text? He recognizes that he cannot do anything by his own power, and he's in a desperate, desperate circumstance. And I want you to, is there a tissue? I want you guys to think very clearly with me for a second. Jairus is facing something that all of us experience in our life, and that's called death. See, what's happening is he has a daughter who is sick, and she's on her deathbed. And Jairus has practiced his righteousness as a Jewish leader, and he's done everything in his own power to maintain to the law. And he believes that he's righteous because of his works and because of his accomplishments. But now he's come to a place of desperation where all he can do is come before the man, Jesus Christ, and say, I have to trust you to do something that I cannot do for myself. And he gets down before Jesus, and you'll notice the waves bowed down. The man with the demon bowed down. Jairus bows down. The text teaches us that. If you look down, it says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. Sounds like a desperate man to me. And when he falls at the feet of Jesus... He implores him. You know what that word implore means? It means begs. I beg you. I beg you, Jesus. I can't do anything. I see it in his earnest plea. I can't do anything for my daughter. I can't do anything. I'm desperate for you to do something that only you can do. And you know what's springing up in Jairus' heart? A little bit of faith. A little bit of trust. Even though he says, I will forsake my Jewish standing as leader in the synagogue. I will walk away from that if you can do something that I cannot do for myself. And he comes to Jesus and he implores him and begs him, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now a little interesting side note just for your Greek usage. Right there where he says that she may be made well. That's actually the same word for being saved. Just a little sidebar for you to pay attention to because it's going to get really interesting here in just a minute. And so Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, you have had trust, you have had faith, now I will go with you. We're going to go to her. And so he goes with Jairus and as he's going, it says in the text that a great crowd followed him everywhere he went. These are the people who want to see what it is that Jesus can do in miracles. They want to hear the things that he's going to say. It doesn't mean they believe it at all. All it means is that they're a crowd who are enamored by the things that Jesus can do. And so as he's going, this great crowd gathers around him. As this crowd, the text teaches us that it was such a crowd that people were pressing in on every side, that they were mashing up against one another. They just wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted to see what it was that Jesus was going to do. And then we have another woman who is far different from Jairus enter the picture. Jairus being a man of standing, probably a man with finances, probably a man who was a leader in the church, Probably a man who was well respected. And on the opposite side, we see a woman who shows up in the picture. And we know that she's been sick, which means what? That she is not even able to observe any kind of Jewish faith because she's ritually unclean. That means that for years, is what the scripture says, she has been unclean, which makes her an outcast, somebody who people wouldn't want to associate with, somebody who they wouldn't trust. Why? Because they're worried that her sickness could be passed to them. Jesus even says, your disease has been healed. That means that there's something about this woman. People do not want to have anything to do with her. And so she's the lowly of the lowly. And you know why that's important? Because what we're seeing right here is the rich need Jesus, the poor need Jesus, the healed need Jesus, the sick need Jesus. Every person in between needs Jesus Christ. The question is, are we desperate for Jesus? Because on both cases, Jairus and the woman are desperate for Jesus. And so what the text says is that she made her way through the crowd. And as she's making her way through the crowd, notice what she is saying to herself. So she's weaving in and out and weaving in and out. And it says, if I touch even his garment. I will be made well. You know what the words made well mean? 
the woman's weaving and she gets up there to Jesus and I can just picture it. She's just, if I can just, she's just saying it to herself over and over. If I can just touch his garment. I'm desperate. If I can just, I've spent all my money. I've been sick for all these years. Not a single doctor's been able to help me. People don't want to have anything to do with me. But none of that matters. If I can get to this guy, Jesus, something will change. She reaches through that crowd and she grabs the hem of that garment, trusting and believing. She's desperate. And the minute she grabs that garment, the Scripture says power entered her body and she was healed. She was made well. And immediately Jesus stood up in the crowd and He said, Who was it that touched me? And He looks around and the disciples are like, You're nuts! Oh, you of little faith, right? Oh, you who was in the boat and didn't even believe that I could calm the sea? You're, you're looking at me and you're asking me, who I know who touched me. And Jesus looks around and He, and he says, and He meets I. Can you imagine that moment? He meets I with that woman. He knew He didn't have to ask. He, who touched me? But he knew. Why? Because he's the, he's the God over everything. He's got all the power. He's got all the victory. He's the Lord over demons. He's the Lord over creation. He's the Lord over sickness. And so he looks that lady right in the eye. And, he, and she re, she's read like a book, right? And what does she do? Pay attention to what she does. It says, And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and did what? Fell down. Fell down before Jesus. And what did she do? She told him the whole truth. She told him the whole story. And so what happens in this woman's life is this. She believes by faith that Jesus can heal her. And what does Jesus do? He does heal her. And what does she do? She confesses everything before Him. It sounds like a woman of desperation to me. Listen, that ought to, whenever you think about your salvation, whenever you think about how God is in control of everything, when you think about who this Jesus is and what He's done for you, every single day you ought to be hitting your knees and you ought to be bowing down before Him and you ought to be confessing everything in your life that is wrong, everything that is a sin and saying, you're the Lord of my life. I don't want that to overcome me anymore. You're the king of my heart. You're the king of my money. You're the king of my relationships. You're the king of my speech. You're the king of my works. And if you're the king of all of these things, I'll place them all at your feet. And I say, you make me whole. You make me well. You continue to be the Lord and king of my life who has saved me. And this woman, that's what she does. She opens that mouth and she starts confessing. Now don't forget who's in that crowd. There's a man named Jairus who had enough faith to come and find out if Jesus could do something for him. And immediately, Satan tried to get in the way like he always does. And he sends those people, and what happens? They come and they say, oh, don't worry about Jesus. Don't, bring the, don't bother the teacher anymore. You notice that word teacher. Don't bring that teacher. Your daughter's dead. I, I, I got too quick. Let, let me draw your attention back to what Jesus says to the woman. After she falls and she confesses, he looks at her and here's what he says to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. There's that word healed again. Of your disease. Saved. You know what peace is? In most of the scripture, the word peace also stands for rest. Those of us who are desperate for Jesus, rest in the peace of Jesus. Jarius hears all this. And then he finds out his daughter's dead and, and he hears the crowd rise up and say, don't, don't worry about that anymore. She's dead. Jesus looks at him and says, do not fear Jarius. Only believe. 
Do not fear, Jairus. Only believe. See, what Jesus knew was that in the heart of Jairus, fear was beginning to rise up to try to overtake his faith. Fear and faith meet, don't they? Whenever death approaches or sickness arises or you find out you got cancer or your mom or your dad or your brother or sister got cancer, right? Or you, you, you find out you're losing your job or you find out that people are going to persecute you for following Jesus, that fear and that faith, they try to meet. And a person who's really desperate for Jesus would trust in faith more than they worry about fear. And they would lay aside and they would say, I'm going to look to the man and not to the circumstance. And instead of them waves overcoming me in my circumstance, I'm going to trust that man who's able to make that wave bow down. I'm going to trust that man who's able to cast out that demon. I'm going to trust that man who's able to heal the sick. And as Jerry fi- Jer- uh, Jerry's finds out, I'm going to trust that man who's able to overcome death. So Jesus says... Do not fear. Only believe. And then they go. They get to the house, and as people do, they're wailing in despair. No hope. There's no point in you coming. This girl's already dead. And what does Jesus say? He says, she's not dead. She's asleep. You want to know why Jesus is able to say that with confidence? He knows he's about to raise that little girl up he knows he's about to give her life out of death and at the same time he's about to picture for them what he does for all of us he goes and he grabs that little girl and he says Talitha Kumi little girl I say to you get up and at the moment he says it, that little girl awakens stands to her feet Jesus declares that he is Lord over death now if you haven't captured the meaning of what that is let me explain it to you I believe that the greatest power Satan has in any person's life is to lead them unto death why because if death overtakes you and you have not trusted Jesus as Lord, that means you are for all of eternity separated from God. And what did Jesus do? He took that death and He overturned it. What Jesus did is He took that greatest power of Satan He said, I'll show you Satan. You're not Lord. I am overturn death Jesus is Lord Jesus is Lord over nature he's Lord over evil he's Lord over spirits he's Lord over disease he's Lord over death and Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that the, for those who would be saved, they must declare Jesus is Lord with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. The person who is desperate to live for Jesus, the person who is desperate to be changed by Jesus, the person who is desperate for eternity spent with God is the person who not only names Jesus as Savior and goes through some motion of walking an aisle and getting a baptism certificate, but it's someone who is willing to declare every day, Jesus is my Lord. He's Lord over death. He's Lord over sickness. He's Lord over my money. He's Lord over my relationships. He's Lord over every single thing in my life. Nothing I have belongs any longer to me it all belongs to him Jesus is Lord have you forgotten your salvation because the day that you were saved what you should have declared is not just Jesus is Savior but you declared Jesus is Lord we got a chair in here bring me that chair he's got one right here bring me that chair Lance walked down the aisles on you guys? No. <laughs> He's scared. <laughs> Lance, you scared to walk down the aisle? 
I like to walk down the aisle because it makes sure people are awake. <laughs> Let me show you what this means. If this chair is a throne of your life, if this chair is a throne of your life, the day that you're saved, what you decide is that Jesus comes and takes a seat. And Jesus sits as king on the throne of your life. And what does a king do? I have to explain this to children all the time. A king tells everybody else what to do. The whole kingdom is about him. The whole kit and caboodle is about this king. And that's what you do when you name Jesus as Lord of your life. You're saying, Jesus, you are my king and I will do anything that you require of me. Because you're on the throne of my life. And Jesus comes and he sits down. Now listen to me. If Jesus has power over death, if Jesus has power over sin, if Jesus has power over sickness, if Jesus has power over nature, if Jesus has power over demons and evil, you really think Jesus could ever be removed from the throne in your life? So basically what you're saying is, well, if you choose that, can you ever really say that Jesus really sat down on the throne in your life? If you can compartmentalize it and shift Jesus around to the parts you want Him to play in, did He really ever sit down on the throne of your life? Were you ever really saved? Were you ever really changed by the power of His Spirit? Now listen to me. It's not about your works, lest any man shall boast. It's about jesus giving you salvation true faith displays itself in self-risking trust in jesus himself and the statement of those who have true faith is jesus is lord over all everything in my life is that the declaration you've made Listen, church, I don't, I don't know how else to say it, so I just, well, I think you realize I don't mince words very much, but there is a day that's fast approaching when persecution will fall across America. And I believe wholeheartedly that the church will be rend of those who are not firm in faith, those who haven't been saved. And like I said, it's not really your choice to make. It's by the power of the Spirit giving it to you. Salvation is His. He owns it. He belongs. It belongs to Him. And He gives it to whom He desires. But, Scripture does indicate to us that whenever He begins to instruct it to our hearts, we have to surrender to it. So this evening, you may have walked in here, and I told you yesterday that there's nothing that's happenstance. There's nothing that's circumstantial. Everything happens because God's in control. So whether you've been here for three sermons or this is your first one, God could have brought you here tonight to see you saved. So here in just a moment, Lance is going to come. Chris is going to start playing some music. This isn't our way to try to trick you into a decision. This is just just presenting you with an opportunity to say yes to what God's already doing in your heart. And tonight, the truth is, is whether you've been in church all your life or this is your first time, you know whether or not God's drawing your heart because He's going to be as clear as a bell. He's going to make it so obvious to you. And listen, there are a lot of, belie- there are a lot of people in the church who... God's trying to draw, and instead they're going to hang on, they're going to get fearful, they're going to get worried about what people's going to think, they're going to get worried about, I've been in church all my life, and how people are going to judge or think about that, but the truth is, is that we need to let go. Say yes to what He's doing in your heart. Surrender your life to Him. My mom always said, when there's nothing left to say, don't say anything else. So I want you to bow your head with me. This is our moment of offering of invitation. 
And an invitation is just an opportunity for you to respond to what the Lord's calling you to respond to. So tonight, here's the question. Are you desperate for Jesus? Not are you just desperate for Him to save you tonight, but are you desperate for Him to continue to be the Lord of your life every single day? Because that's a true sign of real faith. That's a true sign of true salvation. Because a person who's truly saved can't separate the Lordship of Jesus Christ from the salvation that He's provided. So this evening, is the power of the Holy Spirit drawing you to salvation? And if He is, all I ask for you to do is just surrender to that. I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, Vance is going to be here, your pastor. And he's going to receive you with open arms. He's going to help you to understand exactly what Jesus is speaking into your heart. And if somebody gets to Lance, I'll be here. So you don't have an excuse of someone not to talk to. And if I get taken, there are going to be some other people that come up here. Chris will quit playing. He'll be ready. Michael up there in the sound booth will come down. He'll be ready. We trust that God's going to do whatever He desires to do in this place. And all we ask for you to do is respond to Him and say yes. Let Him be the Lord that He is. God, we love you and we trust now that you're going to move by the power of your Spirit in any way that you so desire. Father, I pray if there's someone in this room who's been wrestling with whether or not you truly are the Lord of their life, that they would not be held up by fear or doubt, worry, that they would not be held up by concern from what other people think, Father, that there would be no apprehension in their heart, God, but that they would truly surrender and submit to the calling of your Lordship. God, I know that you desire for men to be saved, that you desire for us to have a relationship with you. You desire, Father, for all men to hear and to know who you are. And so, God, we trust that tonight there's someone in this room, there's one person, two people in this room who need to know you and give their life to you. So I pray, God, that you give them boldness to name you Lord of their life, that they would stop faking their way through this Christian thing but truly be saved by you. Then, God, I also pray, God, that there are Christians in this room. I pray right now that you would so burden their heart for the commission and calling that you've given to them, God, that they would be so desirous to speak your word and to stand in this salvation and this faith that you've given to them, that you would use them in a mighty, powerful way, God, that you would pour out revival. We pray for revival often, God, but we know that it has to begin in a surrender and submission to you. And so, God, if there's a heart in this room who's not surrendered and submitted that belongs to you, that tonight, God, you would call us to repentance and that we would repent of that sin of being non-submitted, non-surrendered, and, God, that you would work in power to heal us in that non-surrender, God, and that you would draw us to your side and that you would give us the strength to be your hands and your feet and your mouth. We trust you for this. God, whatever you desire to do in this room, it's your work. We'll be all careful, Father, to give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor for what you do. It's in Jesus' name that I pray all of these things. Amen.